Welcome to Brooklyn's Members TV and Podcasts. I'm Steve Clark, and I'm delighted to be joined today by two of the world's leading motorsport journalists and authors. I'm here in the UK with historian, radio and TV commentator Simon Taylor. And from his home in Southern California, the international motorsports reporter, photographer and award-winning author, Pete Lyons. Welcome, gentlemen. Hi. Hello. Thank you. Before I hand over to you, Simon, to discuss Pete's latest book, Shadow, The Magnificent Machine of the Man in Mystery, I have to say it's a truly wonderful publication and I'm fascinated to learn how you managed to pack so much information into the publication. I guess we're about to find out. Simon. Thank you, Steve, and hello, Pete. Hello, Simon. Uh, I should point out that uh, Pete and I go back a very long way because we were colleagues on Autosport magazine. He was my American editor and then my Grand Prix editor. Uh, and we're talking, I don't know, 50 years ago or something. It's a frighteningly long time ago. I, I, wanted, I want to say that uh, when you allowed me to move on into the international world from the local North American world, I would introduce myself at racetracks to people I had never met before, like the endurance racing people at Seaberg and Daytona, for instance. And I would say, always say to them, I'm Simon Taylor's man on the scene. And you could change, you could see their posture change. It went from cordial to concentrated. Well, I, uh, yes, possibly. But um, the great thing is that you are rarely, um, you're quite a rare beast in that you have <laughs> a total understanding of American racing and a total understanding of European racing and Grand Prix racing rather. Well, I deny that completely. Well, you Thank were you. following both. But here's the thing. The book that you have done about Shadow has, even before you open it, one terrific advantage, which is this. There are so many motor racing books published all the time, every month, more and more books come out. And to old hands like you and me who've been reading this stuff uh, for so long, it's quite rare now to find a book that actually tells you something you don't already know, or find a book that doesn't already cover well-trodden paths. What's yes. so wonderful about the Shadow book is that it certainly told me an awful lot I didn't know. Of course I remember Shadow when they were a force in Can-Am racing, when they spent eight or nine seasons in Formula One. Um, and I remember this mysterious man in a black hat, Don Nichols, the boss. Um, you have called your book, Man of Mystery. Um, and I think that is, it seems to me, an image that Don Nichols deliberately portrayed. So most of us, even those of us who worked in the business, never could quite get to the bottom of what made Don Nichols tick. And the first achievement of your book is you obviously got to know Don Nichols extremely well, and he obviously got to trust you because he's really told you everything. He's answered virtually every question. I say virtually because you did tell me there were a few he didn't want to answer. This is but true. You have got to that man, and that must have been the first and most difficult thing. How did you get Don Nichols to uh, start to trust you and start to appreciate that you were writing a serious book about him? Um, 
I, the, the, I, I, first of all, I don't think it's fair to say that I knew Don Nichols intimately. I've met many people in, the, uh, in interviewing other people that knew him far more than I did and for a longer period of time. Um, Trevor Harris, for instance, who designed his original tiny tire car, uh, Trevor and Don stayed together as friends for decades, even though they had some rough patches and weren't speaking to each other for two or three years at a time. But toward the end, they were bosom buddies again. Uh, and Trevor uh, tells me that Don was warm, witty, intelligent. Um, uh, he, he, and, he and Trevor said, they, Trevor said that we shared the same, you know, wicked wit. <laughs> And apparently they would say things that uh, only the other one could understand because they, they shared this uh, mentality. I can't say that I got that close to Don, but he was a very closed, uh, reserved, shy person. He, uh, it took a while before we, he and I and my wife, Lauren, who's here, uh, could get on a friendly basis with him. But each day we saw him, he seemed warmer and warmer. And I don't think anyone had ever before taken the time to actually sit and listen to him for hour upon hour upon hour as we did. And we were clearly interested in his story. And I think he, that got through his reserves, I believe. And he started being so enthusiastic that he would jump up. And he's an old man. He's close to 90 when we're talking to him in 2013. And he would literally leap up from his rickety old office chair and dash out into his big warehouse and climb ladders and duck under things and, and step over things and uncover something to show us that he wanted us to see. He was enthusiastic. And the, it was interesting. The very last day that we saw him was on a Thursday. And then on the Friday, we were to go elsewhere in Salinas and spend time at the shop where his uh, DN8 Formula One car was being restored. That's you know, the Alan Jones winning car. And uh, Dennis Muir, who, was a, who worked for Don back in the day, was the son of Lee Muir, the engine man. Dennis was restoring that car and I wanted to investigate that car more. And about 10 o'clock in the morning, Don turned up. He was only a mile away. He was looking for us. He thought we were coming in and he missed us not coming into his shop to talk some more that day. So we were quite touched by that. Obviously that is crucial. If you can get the man that you're effectively writing a biography about, yes. if you can get him on side, and, and you clearly did uh, in this book. Now, I suppose you can look at um, the shadow uh, career, their time in motorsport, um, almost in sections, that they started, of course, originally in Can-Am racing initially with an extraordinarily revolutionary car. Um, and if we can get pictures of it on the screen, this car, which was unbelievably low, it was knee high. Um, and in order to be so low, uh, it had to have tiny wheels with, with special tires uh, that, um, Don Nichols was able to charm out of it. It was Goodyear, wasn't it? Who, who, it was Firestone. He went to Firestone. Me. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then, of course, they then made the move to Formula One. And I'd like to talk to, I'd like to start with Formula One because mm -hmm. although that was the beginning, um, that was really when most of us, um, certainly this side of the pond, became aware 
of Don Nichols and Shadow. Yes. Because suddenly this, this Formula One team appeared. And I think I'm right in saying that they really came into Formula One because Jackie Oliver, the Englishman who'd been driving very effectively for them in Canada, uh, Jackie Oliver persuaded Don Nichols that he should do it. I believe that's true. Yes, both Don and, and Jackie have told me that. Um, the, I think uh, there were probably more than one reason, but it made good sense for Shadow to go into Formula One and UOP, their sponsor, to go into Formula One because it gave them a wide worldwide reach, which you have just touched on by saying that you hadn't really known anything about them until they turned up in Formula One. Well, this was precisely the power of Formula One to a team like that. Well, they spent, uh, what, eight seasons in Formula One. Um, by the end, they were not in a good place. They were kind of back of the grid because the sponsor had gone. The money was obviously very difficult. Um, and in the end, the team was sold on to, to Teddy Yip and became Theodore. But they did have their high points, didn't they? Notably, they did. you just alluded to it, Alan Jones winning for Shadow, the Austrian yes. Grand Prix. Um, I was there and it was a real surprise. And we all felt so good about it because yes. Shadow had been having a tough time for so long. And Alan Jones, of course, was then... Uh, you know, it was before his great time as a world champion racer for Williams. He was this extremely rough, tough Australian who spoke as he found, usually with a few expletives added in. And we all loved him. And that victory in Austria, I know it was their only Grand Prix victory, but it was a fantastic day. Yes. Well, don't forget Tom Price won the race of champions in a shadow as well. Indeed. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you mentioned Tom Price. Um, I mean, we've now got to touch on the fact that there was a double tragedy um, for Shadow because two of their Grand Prix drivers died in the Shadows. Yes. Uh, at the same circuit. At the same circuit at Kyle Army in South Africa. Yes, the, um, Peter Revson testing, great American driver who was a wonderful fit in Shadows. Yes, really. yes. Um, and then the Welshman, the young Welshman that we all thought was going to go all the way to the top, Tom Price. Yes. Um, and of course, Tom Price was killed in a freak accident. Um, Absolutely unbelievable. Yeah. One of the shadows driven by Renzo Zorzi stopped with a problem and briefly caught fire. And a young, inexperienced marshal, the other side of the road, picked up his fire extinguisher, ran across the road, Tom Price came over the brow of the hill and hit him and killed him. And the heavy fire extinguisher killed Tom Price. I mean, what yes. a dreadful freak to happen. What yes. did that do to the team? I mean, that must really have not been sideways. Well, of course it did. Um, I wasn't there that year. I didn't see, witness that. I wasn't close to the team by that stage. But... Um, they carried on as they do. That's when Alan Jones came aboard. Um, they racing teams in those days, Simon, let's not forget the sad fact that this was not that uncommon. It was not at all uncommon to lose one or two of your friends. Mm. Um, the, during my time of covering formula one for you, we lost one person, then two persons, then one person, then another two persons. I may have that order. Each but year. in the four years, I think there were six Formula One drivers. 
yeah. you know, suffered death. Yeah. And you don't get callous about it, but you do get kind of used to it. Yeah. And that's something I don't think younger modern day um, spectators or even journalists understand. Yeah. They, they, they don't know that era. Well, let's go back to the beginning. Um, when Don Nichols was in racing, certainly when he was in Formula One, there was this general thought that he'd appeared from nowhere was he a CIA spy was he yeah. on the run from his Japanese businesses um, and he seemed to cultivate this man of mystery thing in fact the very name of shadow uh, I think came did it not from an American comic about a sort of uh, Superman type hero who was the mystery man that was one element of it, but it also is one of those names that fit the circumstances on other levels. Um, Don himself told us the very first time we asked him about that, where did the name Shadow come from? He started into this long technical explanation. Don was not a technical person, but he tried to use terms that sounded like he did. Yeah. Uh, he was saying that the uh, they were talking about making this ultra-low car. He and Trevor Harris probably sitting around at a bench racing session. Well, what are we going to call this car? And um, Don said, well, how, how, how low could we go? How low could we make the car? What's make the car? What is the, what is the, the, the shallowest possible object we could make? Well, the answer is it's a shadow uh, on, the, on the ground. Yeah. The shadow the car makes is two-dimensional and there's, Nothing, Don said, there's nothing else in creation that is, is like a shadow, it's flat. Um, that's what Don said. So that matched the shadow image that he did admit that he used to read the books and listen to the radio program. But then it also tied in with this, was he or was he not a spy for the CIA? So there, there are actually three reasons why that was an inevitable name. Brilliant. Uh, your book kicks off from page one with this fascinating story of, of huh. Don's early life. And we haven't got time to go into it now, but ladies and gentlemen, you have to read the book to get Thank all you. of this because he had an extraordinary war, a very brave war, World War II. Um, he then disappeared to Japan and made a lot of money. Um, and there are various stories which used to be kicked around the paddock about how he'd made the money in Japan. And in fact, Pete, your book clarifies that. Um, and in fact, he ran some very um, successful automotive businesses and obviously knew exactly what he was doing. Then came back to, into this country and, uh, sorry, into the United States. And then, of course, as you say, he and Trevor Harris tried to come up with this completely revolutionary car which was so yeah. low with these little donut tires um, but it didn't actually get much success in its original form did it no no it was uh, basically it was a science experiment to use a term i've heard other people use um, it was so wildly radical that it had no hope of being a conventional car but as an exercise to explore new ground it, it suited both of those guys perfectly that was who they were they both loved to do new wild crazy things they both uh, have told me that and I've, I've been writing a, a, a piece about that recently 
they both were on the same page that we want we don't want to do what anybody else can do. We want to do something completely novel and experimental and different and solve all the problems. And if we fail, we fail, but we tried. If we succeed, we get all the credit. Yeah, you, I, can't, I you can't beat McLaren by buying a McLaren. <laughs> yes, that's a good way to put it. And, and of course, the car attracted huge amounts of attention. Yes. Well, now, moving on, um, and, and I mean, you are the world's walking expert on Can-Am and have, have written the best book on Can-Am. Uh, but Thank you. It, it, it was a wonderful formula because it was these completely no-holds-barred big sports cars. McLaren obviously were hugely successful with a thousand horsepower, uh, Porsche 917 Spiders. There were some amazing motor cars and the shadow uh, team was at the forefront of, of Can-Am racing. Yes. And the thing that fascinates me is that they had uh, a good old down-home, um, very quick American driver in George Fulmer. Yes. And they had this jumped-up little limey uh, in Jackie Oliver. And reading your book, it seems pretty sure, pretty clear, but by the end, they absolutely loathed each other. There was this famous time in the paddock, which you described beautifully, when Fulmer came looking for Oliver because he was going to knock him flat on his back. And what Oliver did, being a little limey, is he didn't stand up to Fulmer. He ran away across the paddock with hot Fulmer chasing him. I mean, is that how it happened? Um, let, let me make clear that I was not there that day. I wasn't covering Can-Am then, but uh, I've heard stories of people. I've asked both George and Jackie about that. I have, a, have the view of Mike Hillman, who was their team manager then, another Brit. Um, what you describe is basically true, but I don't think it was quite as serious as that. And apparently it wasn't the only time that sort of thing happened because they were so different in personality and as you say, Ali is, is such a combative fellow that he, one of his ways of operating is to wind other people up, to get them tense so that he has a competitive advantage. We hear this in racing all the time, drivers playing mind games on each other. And I think this is what Oliver was doing. I don't know that, I'll, that uh, George is a mind games kind of guy. He's a, I'm going to put my foot in this thing and I'm going to, if I have to push you aside, I'm going to do it because you're in my way. It's, it's nothing subtle with George. Uh, wonderful. But I mean, that's what we love to hear, don't we? Because obviously following motor racing, describing motor racing, an awful lot of it is about the technical side, about the car. And I may say your book is wonderful on that score because the technical stuff is fascinating. Yes. You know, you do get down into the detail. You were taking photographs at the time, not only of cars going around corners, but you were taking photographs of front suspensions, you were taking photographs of the monocoque where the engine was out. And all that of kind that of thing fascinates me. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. Uh, it's, it's, it's brilliant. But when it gets to the drivers, of course, we love it if there is if there are characters, if there are conflicts. But clearly having those two drivers together in one team how did it work? Was Don Nichols really the team manager? Was he trying to hold all the bits of string together or did he have a team manager for uh, to do it for him? Don was um, 
I, I have an interview in, that I did with Tom Price for Autosport. It's reproduced in the book. Uh, and I said, what is Don Nichols' role? And Tom said, he's the boss. I said, so he tells everybody what to do. No, no, no. He, and the, the basic explanation is Don had the team. He, his role was to bring in some financing and give the general direction of what they would do. But he knew that he was not a racing person, a, not a team manager. He had no technical ability whatsoever. And so he left it to people like Jackie Oliver, who was much more adept at many of these areas. And the Tony Southgate was their designer then. And Tony is such a brilliant mind. Um, yeah. Tony well, said that he, Don would, Don would occasionally ask him a technical question about the cars, but it was not in any way to tell him that, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We should do something else whereas certain other people on the team would do that to him. And yet, it's probably not unfair on Don Nichols to say that there were characteristics uh, which probably didn't help um, this, this secrecy, um, this playing the financial cards very close to his chest. Because, of course, when it all really went wrong was when Jackie Oliver... Um, who was in some ways, once they got into Formula One, was the heart of the team. And he walked away from Don Nichols. Effectively, there was a, uh, a, a, a walkout. Jackie Oliver left, Alan Reese, who was the team manager, left, Tony Southgate, who was the designer, left. They all walked out um, mm -hmm. and set up the Arrows team uh, instead. And could Don Nichols not have somehow prevented that, somehow got everybody back on board? Um, Jackie Oliver's discussed this at length. Don Nichols himself talked about it. Um, and bear in mind that I asked them about it decades after it happened, and both men had mellowed. In fact, Jackie made a point of saying that he and Don had reconciled for the end. He was glad he did it before Don died. And Don basically told us the same thing. He, he said, I don't blame him for leaving. I couldn't pay him. What, what your book says, which, which makes a lot of sense, is that Jackie had got to the point. I mean, the, obviously, Don owned the entire team. And Jackie had got to the point. He, he'd been a top Formula One driver. He'd been a top Can-Am driver. Uh, but he knew that he had to think about what his career was going to do after he stopped racing. And if Don Nichols had been prepared to give him a slice of the team, if, if, if he could have become a shareholder in Shadow, then I'm sure that Shadow would have survived uh, because what Jackie Oliver could have brought to the team, was bringing to the team, was absolutely yes. vital. And when he couldn't get a share of the action, um, he, he walked away and most yes. of the team went with him. And, and am I correct that the that the arrows that Jackie Oliver and his partners formed lasted about 20 years. Is that accurate? Yes, Which is more than the, than the total 11 years that Don Nichols' team lasted. Possibly if, 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 if Don and Jackie had come to some, come, some kind of an arrangement that you described, I would imagine that Shadow would have continued under the Jackie Oliver management, probably still being called Shadows, and would have lasted a similar length of time. 
And of course, how it all happened, I mean, it's almost like a kind of thriller novel because, um, and you describe it all very well in your book, there was this walkout, the new shadow for the coming season had already been designed yes. by Tony Southgate. Yes. And then the split came and the new arrows arrived and it was absolutely the same car with a, with a bit of different paintwork on it. And as you describe it, uh, there would have been no reason, there would have been no way that um, John Nichols could have complained about that because Tony Southgate produced this thing from his brain and it happened to look the same. The trouble was that when Tony Southgate left, he very unwisely took some drawings, his own drawings, with him. And it went to the High Court and I think Arrows lost, didn't they? They... Uh... Arrows did lose, yes. Uh, I've asked Tony about this, and he, uh, I'm putting words into his mouth, but basically he said that he took advice from a local solicitor that he knew. I suppose they sat down at a desk and chatted about it, and the advice he was given was that he had done the drawings, therefore they belonged to him. They were his intellectual property. However, that isn't how the high court saw it. Hmm. And of course, what then happened was that Arrows, because they'd been told that they couldn't run the A1, they then had to take a cl clean sheet of paper and Tony mm -hmm. Southgate in about, I don't know, five days or something, had to draw up a completely different car. I mean, it's, it's, this is the sort of story which is why your book is so fascinating because in mean, Formula One, doesn't happen like that anymore. It's much mm. more sophisticated. It's much more um, titanium and, and, and sort of um, gold-plated and big money and big sponsors. And this sort of ducking and diving and hole in the corner and walkouts, it, it makes a wonderful story. It, if, if you remember, uh, not to name names, but there were people who were very, had a reputation for being, um, I don't know, sailing close to the wind, perhaps that's an expression one could use. We can all think of examples that we won't name, but yeah. we, uh, that's kind of the ra racing I think still is. I suspect, I'm not there, but I suspect that if you got deep enough into the inner sanctums of today's Formula One, you'd find the same personalities doing the yeah. same things on a level that we don't get to see. And I, I, I mean, it, it's, it's where, um, I mean, even just working the rules, and as the rules get more and more complicated, uh, the designers get cleverer and cleverer uh, at getting the maximum, what Mark Donahue famously called the unfair advantage. Right. Um, but the man I think I admire, and we're going a little bit off the subject here, but I think one of the men I most admire in all of motorsport is Junior Johnson, because he was a better cheat. He was a better cheat than anyone. He made an absolute, uh, and uh, I mean, wasn't, wasn't he one of the guys who was, a, um, he, he was a sort of liquor runner during Prohibition or, or his yeah, family that, That's apparently the true story. I've never met the gentleman, but yeah. I, I've read enough books and interviews with him that, that apparently he's perfectly happy with. I think he served some time for that, if I'm not mistaken. I, I believe he did. Well, I mean, maybe that's not quite the sort of character we want in Formula One, but I think... Uh, Somebody said, you know, they have, uh, this, this sounds slightly um, uh, 
unclean, but somebody said of Formula One, they have extremely clean, beautifully armed shirts, but they may not have utterly clean underpants. <laughs> Brilliant, I love that. But back, back to Shadow, um, something else that I never knew uh, which comes out in your book, was that when Don Nichols came out of Formula One, when he came out of motorsport, um, he still doesn't stop. I mean, there are all sorts of projects, military vehicles and so on. It's all yes. in the book. Yes. Um, he had a lifelong, genuine, I'm not sure love is the right word, affection, fondness, um, it's a sense he he regarded the military as extremely important part of his life because he left high school at the age of 17 before he graduated uh, during the later years of World War II and he said that he left school to join the army because he was afraid that the war would end and he would miss it and he didn't miss it Don Nichols at 19 years of age was a paratrooper with the U.S. Army Air Corps. He was a pathfinder paratrooper, which means he had the special training and the special whatever it takes to go in with a small group of paratroopers early on before the invasion of D-Day, like a few hours before the, the main body of gliders and paratroopers were to come in. They would parachute into enemy territory under cover of darkness and set up surreptitious signaling lights so that the oncoming wave of paratroopers could know where to do the drops. Wow. So in other words, it's 20 men or so in a, in a Dakota aircraft, as you call the C-47, uh, sneaking through the fog and mist over the, the uh, coastline of France, absolutely blacked out, and there's no lights below either. It's all German-held territory. And at some prearranged point, hopefully they're somewhere near where they're supposed to be. They leap out of the airplane, land on the ground, you know, and Don said that we were the first in. And of course, we immediately got the artillery coming in and that's where he was concussed. Uh, he, he was one of the first casualties and that there was an artillery shell exploded close enough to him that he, it knocked him out basically. And then he was evacuated out to the beach, Omaha Beach or whatever the beaches were. Um, and then at, when he was there, in, he told us when he was there in the medical tent on the beach, a second shell arrived and, and it gave him further wounds. It sliced through the canvas of the tent and, and cut his leg. So he's wounded twice on D-Day. Extraordinary. And I don't know that anybody walking around the Formula One paddock knows that about the man. Well, because he didn't talk about it. Well, when he suddenly appeared in the paddocks, um, this whole thing about coming out of Japan uh, seemed very mysterious. But you have actually got to the bottom of all of that. And in Japan, I suppose we're talking about the 1950s, aren't we? Um, yes. He was very, a very successful businessman. He was. He made a lot of money. He basically was a middleman connecting the outside world with the Japanese, the burgeoning Japanese industry in automobiles that they wanted the Western technology, but they had no idea how to go about it, how to, how to get it, how to, they didn't understand about, um, I wouldn't say they didn't understand, but they, they needed to get 
technology in tires, in machine tools, in parts and pieces, particularly in the, in the motorsports industry that was growing. And Don was perfectly placed to do all that. He knew the Europeans, he knew the Americans, and he knew the, the Japanese. He was fluent in Japanese. He'd gone to army school and learned Japanese during his time as a, as a, as a he was a counterintelligence officer with the military for years, stationed in Japan. I think in Korea too, prior to that, but um, I, I, he never talked, we didn't ask him about his Korea time. That's still blank to me, I'm sorry. Um, but in Japan, he um, was deeply enough involved in counterintelligence that he wouldn't talk about it. Still. And so I, I said to him, I said, what about this spy stuff? Did you work for the CIA? And he just gave me this long, impassive look, and then very courteously and quietly in his Midwestern drawl, he said, well, um, CIA, counterintelligence, um, not appropriate, I think, to talk about that. <laughs> and apparently he, he answered everybody with the same reserve, which of course does nothing but crank up the speculation. I must just also ask you about the last chapter in the book, um, which is your interview with his daughter. Yes, Penny. Who seems quite a lady and with wonderful insights into her father because she was involved in the racing team, wasn't she? She was. As a, as a teenage girl, she joined the team as a gopher, basically, and a wheel polisher and a sandwich maker, and then a, 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 a messenger uh, and then uh, she started making deals on her own. She said she made her first deal. Uh, she endorsed someone's stopwatch so that she got a supply of stopwatches to use to help time the team. Wonderful. Did I get the impression, however, that later on her relationship with her father deteriorated a bit? Yes, it's a sad story. It's it, yes, it was it was a difficult story anyway. Don. She was the product of a marriage that died too early, honestly. Mm -hmm. uh, she said by the time she came along, her parents were already separated, and she, she never actually remembered the time when dad lived with the family. He was already off and had married and started another family. Mm -hmm. um, and so there was always that strain between the two sides of the family. Um, well, Pete, I think we've um, only just given a little kind of taster of what this extraordinary book is about but I think we've said enough to show that the book is about racing cars interesting racing cars and how they were built how they were designed how they worked and how they didn't work it's about racing drivers succeeding failing arguing and sadly even getting killed on in, in a couple of cases um, it's a story of money coming and going, sponsors coming and going, which always happens in motorsport. But it's got so many other fascinating levels. As you say, the story of his daughter, the time in Japan, the World War II exploits. And over it all is still this kind of mysterious character, which is the man in the black hat with the cape, mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. the, the shadow man. He and loved that image. Well, that's why I think this is such a superb book, because it is not your average motor racing book, because it's not about your average motor racing person. And I congratulate you on it. Incidentally, um, 
we ought to point out that it's published by Evro Publishing. Yes. Um, if you've got, if somebody's got the details about how much it costs in the UK and in, in the US, it's right. 75 pounds in the UK. Right. It's $99 in America. Yes. Um, Evro, E-V-R-O, you can find on the internet, find their website. Um, and they're very good at, even during the difficult times we're in now, they're very good at packing. If you'll permit up. me, if you'll permit me a pitch, I'm also selling it through my own website, PeteLyons.com. Oh, right. Don't Is forget the S. PeteLyons.com or one word? Yes. Lowercase, all one word, and don't forget the all S. Right. People all often right. leave out the S, for, so make me lion instead. Okay. All right. Well, it's a wonderful book. Um, what are you going to do next? Well, what have you got for me? <laughs> okay. I, I think that a bit of a private conversation. Pete Lyons, wonderful. I, I have some ideas, but uh, nothing has taken right. place yet. Well, it's very good to be talking to you uh, when we used to talk uh, over the phone in the days when there was no, uh, there was no internet, there was no mobile phones, there wasn't no. a fax machine when we started. And you used to have to get your Can-Am reports to us. Uh, we called them words and music because it had to have ah. some words and it also had to have a roll of film, which you also... Yes, well, four, four um, rolls of film. I was contracted to four rolls of film, two oh, colors and black and white. Yeah, okay. The, the, the only time that it was late was when a certain well-known motor racing personality, and I'm not going to name him, but you remember this, it was the race, I think, in Las Vegas. And you said to him, will you take back on the plane my copy and my films? And he said, yeah, no problem. And when he got to the airport, he found there was quite a wait for his plane. So he went into the airport hotel, found a young lady and went to bed with her. And then he duly then caught the plane, having unfortunately left your copy and film underneath the bed in the hotel. And well, so that's the story. Well, well, well. But I then phoned you and I said, for God's sake, Pete, can you read me your copy over the phone? You kept yes. what you used to call a carbon copy in those yes. days. You read it to me. It was by then Tuesday afternoon, the magazine was about to go to press. I wrote it all down, I typed it out. And if you look at the Autosport Las Vegas report, you'll see that all the cars in the pictures are cropped very tight because of course they were taken the previous week. We had your own <laughs> pictures. Anyway, all of that is completely off the subject. It's great to talk to you, Pete. It's a Thank wonderful you, Simon. Book, and uh, we're all going to enjoy it very much. Right. Peyton Simon, thank you for what has been an absolutely fascinating insight into the new book, which is due for release, I believe, at the end of July or the beginning of August. Pete, the next time you're in the UK, I look forward to welcoming you to Brooklands. Simon, thank you as ever for a fascinating interview. Thank you for watching and listening to our podcasts and videos. Please keep supporting the museum at Love Brooklands. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, guys. Thanks a lot.